And look, every almost everyone, a- anyone who understands the scale of the universe and thinks about how probability works, almost all comes to the same conclusion. Of course, we're not alone, right? It's like if you picked up one grain, no, we have one example, which is what happened on Earth. If you picked up one grain of sand from a beach and you looked in a microscope and you saw it was crawling with little critters, you wouldn't conclude, well, maybe this is the only one that has that. You'd say, of course, I'm sure they're on all kinds of, you know, I didn't just pick up the one that has it, right? Dude, great to uh, great to meet you, and thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, meet at one of my Twitter friends. I know exactly. Well, it feels like everyone at this point is a Twitter friend that I'm now meeting in real life. Like over the last two, three years, some of my best friends in the world now are just like people that were anonymously to- you know, totally. interacting it, with it, on Twitter. It's like a genuinely good way to um, to meet people. Like, they're, like, they're, like Twitter sucks in a hundred ways, but like the. <laughs> It's like really in, like fantastically great for like three or four really important things. Um, yeah, I yeah. found that it like yeah. T- to your point, it's it's both ends of the spectrum, right? It's I guess it's like anything else in life. There's like the one percent. You, you tweeted it actually just recently about like advice filters um, and trust filters, and I feel that same way. It's like you need to know and figure out how to find the one percent that is super interesting that you're really going to engage with and learn a lot from um, amidst all of the noise that is out there. Yeah, you, 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 I think like it, 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 depending on who you follow, it can be um, a great way to learn, a great way to like get a quick feel for, you know, to k- keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on. It, it's a great way to do that in a way that like if you were just checking random news sites versus, you know, because Twitter doesn't just teach, doesn't just show you what the news is. It shows you what the perception of the news is and it shows you what the arguments about the news is and the different you know, a viewpoints and the different you can, and if you follow the right, you know, uh, array of people, it actually gives you a feel for what's going on in every bubble. You know, yeah, you can't, I a, it, yeah. I had a really interesting conversation on this exact topic with a New York Times journalist who I won't name, but who's very famous, well known, literally earlier this week. And he was saying that they just had a memo go around internally at the New York Times that basically encouraged them to stop using Twitter so much and to stop reading yeah. so much because they have an internal perception that it is like 5% of what's actually happening, but commanding 95% of their mind share of mm. what is happening. And so they're worried that it's like skewing their journalistic integrity or their the journalism. Um, so I'm curious just like generally how other people think about that. I haven't floated it with anyone else since having that conversation. Today, I am so excited to talk about Riverside. Riverside is the leading platform for studio quality remote podcasts and video recordings from anywhere. We absolutely love it at where it happens, and you're going to love it too. Greg, what have you enjoyed most about Riverside? What's amazing about Riverside is that when you're recording a remote video podcast or a remote interview, the recording quality is independent of Wi-Fi stability. It basically records locally, which is a huge advantage in order to ensure a reliable and uncompressed content outcome. The way I think about it, it's basically like a studio inside your browser. And it's not just us who uses it. It's 70,000 plus people ranging from Guy Raz, Gary V, and the New York Times. It's an amazing experience, super easy and intuitive to use. You don't need a whole team on the back end to manage it, to get it up onto all of the podcasting platforms. It is just a great overall experience, truly a podcast studio in your pocket that you can use from anywhere. We absolutely love it, and you're going to as well. 
So to check out Riverside, go to riverside.fm and use code HAPPENS for 15% off a membership plan. Again, that's riverside.fm and use code HAPPENS for 15% off at checkout. If you're anything like me, your portfolio is a mix of the usual suspects, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Maybe you've even dabbled in some alternative assets like crypto, but those investments can be incredibly unpredictable. You know what typically isn't unpredictable? Apartment buildings, rental homes, industrial facilities, places we go every day to work, eat, and live. That's all private real estate. And thanks to its historical stability, as well as its reputation as a reliable income stream, these investments could be a valuable addition to your portfolio. This is where Fundrise comes in. Fundrise is changing the game when it comes to real estate investing and making this powerful asset class easily available to investors like you and me. Their easy-to-use app lets you build a real estate portfolio tailored to meet your goals. It's a great way to benefit from real estate's many perks while adding some much-needed diversification to your portfolio. So join over 250,000 other investors building a better portfolio with private real estate. Signing up is easy. Just head over to fundrise.com room. Again, that's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash room to get started today. My instinct is that that's, it's hard because on one hand, like what's going on in Twitter is part of what's going on in reality. Like, it, and it has a big effect on things. So, you know, you don't want to totally have your head in the sand and just pretend it doesn't exist. But I do think that, we're, you know, we're like, we're really um, social beings. Like I, I uh, just as a random story here, uh, I, I, I always used to like love traveling alone, right? It was one of my favorite things. And, you know, the first time I, you know, I went, I was kind of like, oh, I'm going to go to like a restaurant alone. I'm in a foreign country. This is so like embarrassing. I'm alone in the restaurant. I started to like reframe and I was like, this is not, A, none of these people know who I am and they'll never see them again. Um, but B, it's like, why would I be embarrassed anyway? It's like, who cares what anyone thinks? And and I got into this mode where I suddenly was just like so comfortable being alone, traveling, whatever. But then I found myself on like a little tour. Uh, it was like in the Amazon. Uh, and it was, this is one of my solo trips. And it was a little tour and they were like, and I often made friends. You know, I was very social when I went. So I often did meet people and I like, you know, I liked making friends from other countries. And I went to um, this tour and there, there was this, uh, there was like six of us. And I guess like, the other, the four of them, like two couples or whatever, had like gotten to know each other. Um, and then the fifth one was like another European and they kind of befriended that person. And I was like an American. I don't know whether they didn't like Americans or they didn't just, they just didn't like me, but I felt very like outgrouped in a, in a way that it was like, a, it was like a two day thing. And I found myself like caring so much about being outgrouped by five randos who I literally was never going to see again. And like, it was just it was just a reminder that like there's a mechanism in our brain that can be flipped on and make us insane. Like to, for me to care about being outgrouped by this group of complete strangers was like it was because I, I appreciated it even at the time I was like this is super irrational. But I it was like really kind of upset about it. Three days after it was over, I was like, why did I care? But anyway, so back to Twitter. I think that what Twitter does is it has a lot of dynamics on it, a lot of kind of in-group, out-group bullying, like, you know, um, uh, you know, slandering. And, and it has like, you know, uh, uh, you know, people have their crew that, you know, that agree with them and you know, people like me, you know, we, we tweet, we retweet this stuff, whatever it is. And I think it like 
switches on kind of a, a kind of a crazy part of our brains. And I can see journalists kind of getting wrapped up in it and suddenly kind of feeling that like middle school kind of social pressure. And, and I don't think that's, that's probably, I don't think that's good for a, many people. And I think journalists, especially. So I was a roundabout way of kind of explaining <laughs> yeah. why I think it might be bad. Well, I love that story. Cause I've often talked about how I think, um, a lot of society's problems or your individual problems would be solved if you went out on a date by yourself once a month and just like sat at a bar by yourself with your own thoughts. Like, I think we've lost as a society, our ability to be, uh, in solitude and experience solitude because we're constantly, you know, we're on our phones. I've got my phone, you know, you're getting, ping there's just stimuli all around you and so we've lost the ability to just be alone and i think that when you do that and when you re-engage that sense a lot of positives come from it to your point it's interesting some of the like biases and psychological impacts of it like the spotlight effect which you kind of referred to um we constantly think that other people are looking at us the reality is everyone's just thinking about themselves everyone's selfish and just thinking about themselves no one cares how you look sitting alone at the bar nobody's thinking about you um but it's such a funny and and even if someone is like you have to if you just like it, it, the, the the thought that it matters is a very crazy part of your brain that cares. That is like, oh, you know, like, I, you know, when I'm in a good zone, like kind of comfortable and in a mature zone, I, I can I can be pretty sure that other people I know, even like people I know well, are talking shit about me. And I don't and it, and it rolls off my back and I say, you know, I talk shit about people like it happens. It's OK. Of course, that's when I'm in a really good zone, you know, and then when you're in a bad zone, like you just like you care so much about social things. It's a uh, it's such a fun like the ability to pull yourself away from your your own internal uh, feelings like that is very rare. I've like I personally I I won't comment on my own uh, experience with this, but I've heard that when people are under the influence of psychedelic uh, drugs or medicines, that you have, some people have the ability to step away from what they're feeling. And so you're like, wow, there's all this crazy stuff going on, but then you can pull back from it and experience it as like, what is happening in my brain? This is an interesting experience and process, which is part of why scientists think there's a huge, um, you know, potential use of for treatments of depression and other psychological disorders as well. You can like unpack and deconstruct your own, um, your own perspectives and emotions. Well, yeah, it's like, I, I feel like uh, if, if usually you're kind of um, the way I kind of like, it's if you're in um, a sphere of like, you know, experiences and feelings and um, thoughts yeah, it's like psychedelics allows you to kind of like step outside and look at the sphere and like maybe look at it from other angles and like walk around it, and look under it. And like, and that is um, uh, incredible. Like it's an incredible um, uh, tool. For it relates to um, exactly how I wanted to. It's funny. We had a roundabout way of leading to the exact thing that I wanted to frame up this discussion with. And I always think about like, what is the right way to, um, sort of frame up like as a framework or mental model, the kind of line of, of discussion and, and chat. And, you know, I thought I would kind of go meta here in, uh, using one of your own pieces. One of, one of my favorite pieces from wait, but why, um, which was your Neuralink piece. And you had a line in there that I just thought was, fantastic. And I think it's a great way of framing up the discussion. And what you said was, I learned that you can only fully wrap your head around certain companies, abstract companies to really anything by zooming both way, way in and way, way out in on the technical challenges facing the engineers out on the existential challenges facing our species in on a snapshot of the world right now, 
out on the big story of how we got to this moment and what our far future could look like. So maybe just to kick off, what did you mean by that when you when you wrote that? Um, and I want to just kind of use that thread of zooming way in and zooming way out to examine a few different a uh, few different topics today. Yeah, I, I think um, I just in general are talking about zooming. I, to me, it's like a very uh, it's a, it's an axis kind of you know that we can be on. It's a spectrum of um, how you know I think backed up or you know sometimes I think about it as as you're backing up, but I think maybe sometimes even a better metaphor is like uh, you're so. Um, when you're zoomed in, it's like you're on a beach and you can like look down, you know, you really, you know, you're on a beach and you're looking around and you see, so like the coast goes around, you know, wraps around over there and over there and uh, you see some, you know, water goes out and you just, you just don't see anything else. Um, and so first of all, you can zoom in, which is you can take a microscope and start examining the grains of sand and, um, you know, just really getting down there and, and understanding, you know, how did this happen? How, how did each grain of sand get, you know, get like this? And, um, you know, how, how, you know, how do these trees grow? And, you know, what are these little tiny organisms doing? But to me, you know, what, what's, so that, that's one, that's one thing that I think can help you really understand a beach better. But um, often we're, we're, you know, we're looking at something and we don't know, is this, are we on an island? Is this part of a continent? Is this is this a little stretch stretch of a ton of beach, or is this the only little area of beach? Uh, is that a, am I looking at a, a lake, a big lake, or is this the ocean? Um, and so, w- what we can do is like, if you I think about it like a news story, if a news story that day is just like looking at a strip of beach, sometimes you don't know like is that news is this news story actually important? Like how like in ten years will Russia Ukraine be like one of the biggest? things of the decade or will it be like this kind of like be like oh yeah remember that russia ukraine thing that was on for like four months like it's hard to know right like um there's all these you know stories that it's and so i think of it as a helicopter you go up and now you can see more you can start to like so if you if you look back at the last month um and i know i'm like yeah bringing news stories in now it's a little bit convoluted but but basically if you look at the last month of news stories you can start to see like oh okay this matter this matter. that's like when you can like zoom up and you can see the whole um, kind of region here, but you still can't really see, is this, how big is this place? Is it a continent? Is it, is it a huge island? I don't know. And you go up farther and farther until you're actually, now you can see actually, okay, okay. Now you can, you can see the whole continent and the outline of it and where you were on it. And you go up even further and you can see the whole earth and you can kind of fully see. To me, it's like, um, if you, you know, if you zoomed out, uh, um, uh, on a lot of things, you can see the huge, huge story. And, and so often I think we're like caught in the middle. Um, we're caught in the middle, like time-wise, as I said, with like news stories, like it's hard to, it's, it's hard for us to see the big, big picture here. What's the real overarching story that's going on in 2022 right now? And, 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 you know, we, time gives us that, that helicopter hindsight. Um, uh, but also it's not just time. It's also just, you know, in, in an industry, if there's a company, well, what's the big story of this company? What's really going on in this industry? What, what are the major forces in play? So I think, um, um, we need to do a lot more zooming out uh, the best we can. Obviously, again, hindsight helps and um, some statistics can help to get a feel for, uh, I, I think that uh, whenever I want to understand something, that's my instinct is like, what's the big, big story going on? Like, what's all of this a part of? Again, is, is, this, is this part of an island? Is this part of a giant continent? Is this, it's, you know, how relevant is each thing? 
but then also zooming in, um, I find that so often, like, we just, again, we're caught in the middle where we like read the news story um, or we, um, we, we, we understand, you know, we try to study how a company works or, or you know, the, the basic deal with the company. Uh, but it's when you, you know, if you go in and you actually talk to the engineers and start to understand the problems they're facing, you watch what they're doing on a Wednesday at 2 p.m. and you sit in on some of the meetings it's amazing how much clearer everything gets suddenly. And you look back to what you thought like a week ago before all this. And you're like, wow, I, I really had this like depiction that was just wrong. It was not accurate. Um, it's so interesting because my perception is that we often spend, I think most humans spend the vast majority of their time in the middle, not zoomed in, not zoomed out. It's because it's most comfortable, right? That's like the, the point of peak abstraction where, uh, to use your thought experiment, um, the pencil just looks like a pencil and you don't worry about it. And you're like, yeah, I write with it. You know, this is my thing. It's my pencil. And zooming in is really uncomfortable because you go in and you realize all of the different components and like your thought experiment of no one in the world knows how to build a pencil because it has lead and it, or what, you know, all of the different components yeah. of it. Not, there's not a single human who can build that pencil and know how to put it the entire thing together. But then when you zoom out, it's also really uncomfortable. You zoom out and you're like, what is the meaning of all of this? And what, how does the pencil, how has that changed society over the last thousand years, you know, and all of the writing. And so most people, because it's the most comfortable, end up just sitting in the middle and you kind of play that like peak abstraction throughout your entire life. And but, the, the, the middle is important too. It's just that it's only one of the areas and yeah. It's actually probably the best place to live. But to understand, you kind of need to go to both extremes. Yeah. And it's probably the point where it's like you go to both extremes and then you can coast in the middle and be happy and like feel fulfilled in there. And I do think uh, the secret of if, you, if some of the most, you know, people who seem super prescient, like they can just, you know, read the future, amazing at investing in stocks or they're incredible entrepreneurs. They just can see opportunities or whatever it is. Um. I th even, you know, stand-up comedians, you know, which mm -hmm. is stand a good stand-up comedian is they really see the, 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 the bigger social forces going on and they can point them out in a way that everyone says, oh my God, that's so true. You know, I think that one of the things people have in common is that they often are really good at the zoom in, in and zoom out. Like Elon Musk, classic example, like no one's a better zoom outer. I mean, he, he, he just seems to like see the overarching farthest back stories of like, uh, you know, humanity is, you know, the, um, uh, like trying to keep the light of human consciousness. Um, uh, 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 and, and he sees, um, you know, the, the, the major existential threats. Uh, he just thinks that's where his head is. He's always thinking about that. But then also, you know, he knows exactly the four elements that make up the paint on the rocket, you know, and, and, and you know, and he can tell you how much the rocket weighs uh, more if you use this paint versus that paint. And, you know, every single component of the Tesla, you know, he, he can tell you about. So when, when you have that level of both out and in kind of clarity, it just, um, you're just like seeing without any fog, you know, we have so much. So if you think about it is, you know, we see in the middle kind of even there, you know, the middle often we can get deceived if you don't see the top and bottom, you know, we can often be deceived by news stories, you know, or by, by, by you know, headlines and, you know, you know, kind of uh, dogmatic storylines, like, you know, political narratives can kind of fool us. But when you, when you really see the big, big picture, and then you also kind of understand what's going on, I feel like it's at the small level, I think it's just, you're much harder to trick and you can, you can work magic.
uh, in investing and entrepreneurship and the arts and other things like that. So I, I want to spend like a couple of minutes doing a zoom in, zoom out on you. Um, I feel like everybody uh, knows you as, you know, the most popular blogger in the world, whether or not uh, that's like an official title. You might not be in the Guinness Book of World Records for that. I don't know if people still make those or if they're uh, they, they commanded like a massive outsized share of my childhood. I kind of I view, it was I like view, it was like one of the. It was like the peak, you know, that was the pinnacle of human achievement was being in the Guinness Book of World Records in my mind. It was like, it was like one you know, of the main, it was like one of the three or four main things. <laughs> it was like, right. It was like, it really, I tweeted out something, uh, maybe like, I don't know, a few weeks ago, like what was one thing that you thought was really important when you were a kid that actually turned out to be totally useless. And like the most common responses were Guinness Book of World Records. Um, and then the other ones, which I thought, which I find hilarious are like quicksand, uh, piranhas, like the Bermuda Triangle. I really wondered why no one was looking into the Bermuda Triangle. I was like, man, planes are falling out of the sky in this thing and no one's Nightmarish. looking into it. Nightmarish. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, quick, quicksand is a, is a very good one. Like, I think part, part of it has to do with the Princess Bride. Um, <laughs> but I think it's just in general. It was, it was in cartoons and it was like, it was like very kind of a scary part of life. Yeah. It was quicksand. I mean, I thought I was like, really going to encounter that stuff as an adult. I really thought that was going to be a part of my life. So uh, back to the broader point on you, um, like, you know, you were born, now you're here, <laughs> you know, kind of what, what happened in between? How, how did you, um, you know, form your maps of reality? Like what were the, what were the kind of um, key parts of your life that you feel like have impacted where you are today? Um, yeah, I, uh, I think I've always just kind of been an analytical person. Like I just, it's just my instinct to um, when something is going on or I feel a certain way or something happens to just like try to categorize it, you know, and, um, and, and like make sense of it in a way. And, 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 and so I also then like people who do that, I end up connecting well with them. And when, when I find someone who also happens to do that, we become really good friends Um because we just do a lot of that. Um, and so I Were think- Were there downsides um, to that? Were there ever downsides from a relationship standpoint or growing up where you kind of felt different as a result of that analytical nature? Um, I mean, it, there's downsides in that it just can like, you're, you're thinking, you're just thinking all the time, right? It's hard, it can, it can take you out of being present. Um, I think it can cause you anxiety, I think you can overanalyze stuff. I think if something unfortunate happens, like instead of just being like, yeah, that was a bummer. You might like mm -hmm. really, you, you might like in, internalize exactly how big a mistake it was in a way that like, you know, it would have been better to kind of just not be thinking so hard about it. Um, I always thought you were a, a, a pitcher, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I would see the, the baseball fidget toy that I carry around. With yeah. <laughs> like, I would have uh, been an awful uh, match for that because I would have been like, you know, um, you know, I don't know, you know, I'm just saying I'm like a relief pitcher and I come in and, and I, and I, you know, and I have two outs and there's like a man on second. And I just like, in my head, I would start thinking whether this third guy gets out or gets a hit is the difference between my entire, like, like week <laughs> being like a good, having been like a good, you know, Weekend, like, and like, you know, and then of course it's like the playoffs. I would, I would have a moment when I'm like, 
I, I would just not be able to get it out of my head that like this what I do now will like affect the rest of my life. And you can extrapolate, by the way. Like I bet there is a very clear correlation. If you look to pitchers, the one common thread that I always found among great pitchers, and I think it applies to all athletes. I actually think it applies to entrepreneurs. Is this like almost irrational arrogance uh, around your own abilities? And like with pitchers, you had to be so uh, irrational that you could go out and give up a grand, you know, the the worst outing of your life, and come out of the game and be like those guys suck, man. That was you know, lucky, whatever. Like I'm way better than uh, them. That's bullshit. Uh, you had to have that like right. completely irrational. It made no sense. If you actually evaluated every single outing, you would have gone nuts. And to your point, you'd never be able to do it at scale. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have some kind of, um, kind of like emotional shield that's just like when, when, when bad things happen, just like bounces off. So mm. you stay strong, you know? And, um, and so I think, I think, you know, analytical people like analytical, I'm not even sure is the word just, I don't know whatever it is, but like, it's a little bit of a zoom out thing. Like, I guess if I were pitching, I'd be zooming out and being like, I'd see the whole career and be like, oh shit. Like I, this might be my one time in the playoffs. Like if, or, or you know, like if I like, uh, you know, whatever it is, like I would, the zoom out is not helpful in that moment. You know, <laughs> it's like, you want to be totally, like a, it's kind of like a weird partially, uh, permeable shield too, like to, to your point on the shield, I think that's a great reference, but you sort of need something to break through so that you can actually adapt and get better too. You want like most of it to deflect off and shoot off back into space and the like little inkling of insight that might make you better the next time out to actually permeate and, and kind of hit you. I, I think that goes for a lot more than sports too. Like yeah. I think if you think about um, your beliefs, your ideas and who you are as a person, your personality, like the way you are. I think it's good to be a little bit on the arrogant side, a little bit, like enough where you're like proud of who you are, you're confident in what you know and, and uh, your values and your beliefs and you, you go with them. You're not always, you know, rethinking them or questioning them or self-doubt, you know, you're, you're, you're maybe even have a little less than rational self-doubt. Like, you know, you're, you're kind of just like, this is who I am. I'm proud of it. And this is what I believe. And I think that that's a good thing to a point. Um, and I think that it's like, that's a, and it's like you said, you have to, you have to mix that with being able to sometimes say something's not working for me here, or maybe I can grow up a little bit in this way, or maybe I'm wrong about this. Like, and if you can't do that now, it's like a rubber shield. that's so thick. Cause maybe you're so, maybe you're so scared of what it would feel like to not have that. Cause usually once it gets, when arrogance gets to a certain point, I think it's not a result of confidence. It's a result of some kind of fear when it gets to a and now it's a rubber like shield that yeah. all new information bounces off of all, all negative feedback bounces off of. And, you know, you know, you know, you can tell when someone's like this, when if they get negative feedback, they get really angry and they end up even more sure of themselves and they hate that person. I mean, that's someone who has a, I think an arrogance pr a problem with feedback. Um, but I, I think that um, being totally rational about like, maybe I, well, maybe I should question this because that's, I don't, I think, I think it's, that's actually can, can be a paralyzing place. And you can quickly drift when you, if you think of it, this as like a spectrum of arrogance all the way down to like insecurity. You can drift below that totally rational line to a place where now you're, you're doubting yourself even when it doesn't make sense to. Right. And so, um, but like, for example, like this is the kind of thing I've always done for we're having this conversation. And now in my head, I've formed a, a, an axis, a spectrum that goes from arrogant with a dotted line in the middle, totally rational down to totally insecure. And then I think the right thing is like a quarter of the, or third of the way from the dotted line to the, but that's just like, that's just how I think. I've always done that, right? Um, or like, I remember in college, I met these, a couple of my best friends, you know, we really connected over 
are just like, we, we were really, really interested in the topic of like how to find love, like how to find the right person to marry or whatever. Um, what, what makes a good relationship versus a bad, what should deal breakers be? So, so much, so many of the things I write, like I've written now a couple posts about that kind of thing. And so many of those emerge from these conversations um, that I've had. And, and like, I remember we, we were like, you know, I kind of come up with a theory, um, you know, just talking, I was like, okay, I think what matters is, um, you know, three, there's three things that you have to be good and, and then everything else can be bad and it's fine. Like the three things have to be, you have to have like a general attraction. You can't just see them as like your buddy. You have to, you have to have like a crush or, you know, you know, physical attraction of some kind of physical attraction is, you know, especially at the the beginning, but like, if it starts off with a lot of that, I think that carries you. It's always feels a little more special than just a friend. So there has to be something there. Um, there has to be like a best friendship type thing where like, you don't want to feel like when you're out to dinner with your person and then also your friends and you're having so much fun with your friends and then you, then they leave and you, you're heading home with your person and you're like, Oh, uh, damn, it's just, just us again. Like you, you don't want to feel that way. You want to feel excited. Oh, it's just us. Now we can like really get into it. You know? Um, like you, you don't want to feel like bummed out that like your friends aren't there all the time because you're just kind of bored with your person. And I, I actually used something called the traffic test there, which is if, you know, there's certain friends of mine, uh, friends, family members who, when I'm, I like talking to them so much. I have so much fun just being with them and just talking to them that when we're like in a car somewhere and I'm driving them home, right. Or vice versa. I'm, I'm actually like pumped up when we hit traffic. I'm like, yes, traffic. Yes. We have more time as opposed to like, you know, normally traffic sucks. I think that your person should pass the traffic test. You know, you should, it should be one of those people uh, where it's just super fun. Okay. And then the third area, so there's like attraction, like best friendship. The third area is just that like a deep trust that you just like, you just know that they're, you feel like they're a very good person. You feel like they're just like, they're, they're, they're like, you know, deep down they're, they're, they're you totally trust them. They're not going to like hurt you badly. You're not like kind of always like scared that you're going to get, you know, or, or, you know, you can just kind of be yourself and know that it's okay. Um, so it sounds like that's a lot, but actually there's a lot of other things. You know, there's stuff you like to do in common. There's like mutual friends. There's like same philosophies on values on these other things, you know, religion, you know, there's a lot of other things that I, I think are, are there that I think, that, you know, if the, uh, if those big three things are there, those friends. So anyway, that's the kind of thing that I've done a lot well, in re- my life. <laughs> it reminds me of like John Nash, uh, you know, uh, hypothesizing around the Nash equilibrium and like game theory around the women at the bar. Yeah, like, exactly. It's in beautiful mind. It's like that scene. You know, I remember. Famous scene it's in a very movie. memorable it reminds, scene. It reminds me of that. Uh, you know, it's like uh, breaking down this situation in a mathematical way and in such an analytical way. It's very, um, it's very interesting. How did, um, how did Wait But Why actually come about? I, were, were you writing before it? Like, I don't know the origin story of how it actually came to be and like the stick figures and all of your amazing drawings and like how, how did you actually launch into that endeavor yeah i um i was writing um i basically i i uh i always wanted to do something creative professionally um and the thing i was trying to do was music but it's like the worst match for a procrastinator because you know it, you, you can't just you know you 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 know and, and perfectionist you know you always yeah. i would be paralyzed by wanting to write like the best movie score for this thing possible. And then you just like end up behind deadline and like, or I just don't go out in the first place and do the networking. I need to, it was a lot of like things where I I was not, I did not have the work habits to like that I needed to be like really getting that career rolling. And so I was procrastinating on that by doing a couple other things, starting a test prep company, which was just like my side job. And then I ended up hiring friends who were out there and they also needed a job and tutoring and 
And then I started blogging just for fun, which I didn't take seriously. It was like just a fun procrastination activity. Um, I, I made like a blogger um, and, oh, yeah. you know, just super simple. And, um, and I found it was as part of it was, it was this, it was this, I didn't know, I tricked myself where I was doing a creative pursuit that I wasn't being perfectionist about because I didn't pride myself on being good at it. And I didn't, wasn't trying to do anything big with it. And so that's often how you end up in a really kind of loose, carefree creative zone, having fun. And so I ended up writing what I think was a pretty good blog. It was, it was, it was not, I didn't put anywhere near the time that I put in now. It was just kind of stuff about my day or my theories on this or a bunch, you know, 20 things I don't understand, you know? Um, and I would just, you know, and it, it, I just had fun with it. Right. And, um, and, uh, and then, so meanwhile, on the test prep side of things, I, I, I my, uh, my best friend, since we were five moved to LA, which is where I was. And we, we partnered up when we were doing that together. And, uh, you know, now, now I'm like 30 and I'm, I'm basically telling him I'm going crazy doing these like creative pursuits on the side. I was writing a musical on the side. I was doing blogging on the side while doing this test prep company. I didn't feel like I was giving my all to the business and I wasn't giving my all to anything. And it was this kind of classic me situation to end up in like super miserable. Um, not really, you know, and, and, and I was like, I need to go full time with one of these creative pursuits. And we decided to do something that, you know, uh, could be also maybe like something that could be, um, a, a, a business venture possibly. Um, it was, you know, it was like, cause, cause it was a way to like keep working together. Cause I liked working with him, but he would manage the, um, the, the, the kind of the business we were doing and I would go and start a new thing. That was the kind of idea. It was like a way to have my cake and eat it too having to like fully quit everything and but also right. get to do something I really wanted but something that maybe was a fun thing for him to be part of if it grew as opposed to like a musical which is just like it's such a long time process it's like so hard to get that to actually make money and so anyway I, I was because it was just sat in between those I was like I do a lot of blogging and I do this this musical so decided to go with blogging that's kind of this long story but the like the bigger picture was like I finally at 31 did what I should have done a long time ago, which is just go full in with one of my creative pursuits. Um, It's so interesting um, because there's a generalized um, version of this story, which I've experienced as well, which is just this idea that you almost like most people that go and build something really unique or um, something impressive, successful, et cetera. They had the like janky version of it that happened before. And then that led to and sort of allowed and enabled the really beautiful, polished version of it. And like I, I used to write this um, like once a month newsletter that I would send out to probably at like a max distribution of like 500 people. And it was like what I read that month, basically. And it was sort of just me like reviewing a few books. And it was pretty crappy. Like the writing probably wasn't good, but it was loose to your point. And it was kind of, um, again, like a janky version of the audience building and the thing that I ended up doing at scale um, was the seed had been planted and I was working on it. And I think about that when I hear you tell the story of wait, but why? Like you'd been working, writing, you know, you kind of opened yourself up creatively, put yourself in the arena a bit, and you had to do that small thing in order for the big thing to actually happen. There's actually even another level, which is when I started this first blog, I realized that what I was actually doing is I was doing something I had done forever, which is I'd come back from a trip or a crazy weird day. And I would just type an email to like 12 friends and I, and I would do it, you know, I'd be like, okay, you know, like, you know, throughout the day, like the following things happen, like tick this, tick this, tick <laughs> this, right. I just do that. I write these long kind of, you know, emails to friends. And I realized when I started blogging, I was like, oh, I'm just actually doing the thing that I used to just do on as, as an email. I'm doing this now as a blog. 
And then, then I took it and did it as a full-time job, you know? So there's even like more layers. Like, and I think that is a a lot of times something you're doing very casually actually, you know, is, um, you, you actually sometimes find something that, man, I'm good at this and I really like it. And it doesn't feel like it, it could go anywhere because it seems like it's such a casual thing, but sometimes you can make that connection and say, I think this like thing that I do with my friends actually is pretty special. Maybe I can do something with that. Like sometimes that's what, you know, that sometimes it's there. If you're anything like me, your portfolio is a mix of the usual suspects, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Maybe you've even dabbled in some alternative assets like crypto, but those investments can be incredibly unpredictable. You know what typically isn't unpredictable? Apartment buildings, rental homes, industrial facilities, places we go every day to work, eat, and live. That's all private real estate. And thanks to its historical stability, as well as its reputation as a reliable income stream, these investments could be a valuable addition to your portfolio. This is where Fundrise comes in. Fundrise is changing the game when it comes to real estate investing and making this powerful asset class easily available to investors like you and me. Their easy-to-use app lets you build a real estate portfolio tailored to meet your goals. It's a great way to benefit from real estate's many perks while adding some much-needed diversification to your portfolio. So join over 250,000 other investors building a better portfolio with private real estate. Signing up is easy. Just head over to fundrise.com room. Again, that's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash room to get started today. Today, I am so excited to talk about Riverside. Riverside is the leading platform for studio quality remote podcasts and video recordings from anywhere. We absolutely love it at Where It Happens, and you're going to love it too. Greg, what have you enjoyed most about Riverside? What's amazing about Riverside is that when you're recording a remote video podcast or a remote interview, the recording quality is independent of Wi-Fi stability. It basically records locally, which is a huge advantage in order to ensure a reliable and uncompressed content outcome. The way I think about it, it's basically like a studio inside your browser. And it's not just us who uses it. It's 70,000 plus people ranging from Guy Raz, Gary Vee, and the New York Times. It's an amazing experience, super easy and intuitive to use. You don't need a whole team on the back end to manage it, to get it up onto all of the podcasting platforms. It is just a great overall experience, truly a podcast studio in your pocket that you can use from anywhere. We absolutely love it, and you're going to as well. So to check out Riverside, go to riverside.fm and use code HAPPENS for 15% off a membership plan. Again, that's riverside.fm and use code HAPPENS for 15% off at checkout. So it's led you to some amazing things. You've you know built relationships, built a reputation around your writing and your creative work that is astounding and you know and far reaching. Your posts, which you're a bit of a unicorn within the um, you know blogging and newsletter writing sphere, because you don't really have a set cadence for these posts. You're not like you know one of these. Hey, I'm going to write one a week or one a month. Your posts are sort of few and far between, but when you release them, they go completely nuts and people, you know, dive in. They're these longer posts really exploring a topic from what I love about them is it feels like you come at a topic from basically any every any and every angle that might exist at it um, and really envelop the topic. One of the things um, that sort of 
kind of vaulted you to another level of prominence along the way was your relationship with um, Elon Musk. And you mentioned him earlier and um, some of your insights on him. And so I feel like um, a, a need to to unpack that a little bit. Can you just tell the the quick story of how you originally got connected with him in the first place to write the pieces you did on SpaceX, Tesla, Neuralink, et cetera? Yeah. Um, it really started when, so at the, you know, as I said, I, that this was a partnership with my friend, Andrew Finn. And so we're every week I was, you know, coming up with what's the next topic, you know, what's the next, um, because at the beginning it was more regular and it was like, Hmm. you know, you know, it, it, you know, I, I I was able to kind of go longer and less regular once there was already an audience I knew would be there. Um, and it was always like, you know, what's, what's like, uh, you know, so many topics, potential topics, what's the choice. And he said to me one day, Andrew, he was like, um, he's like, you might want to write about AI. There's, you know, the, um, Nick, I think, you know, he's like, you know, there, there's a bunch of people are reading this book by Nick Bostrom, um, super intelligent. So I was like, all right. Mm-hmm. So I picked it up, read it was like, had, you know, jaw on the floor. Um, and then I, um, read, you know, another book, um, uh, and then I read, uh, I forget what the second book was called. It's in, it's in the post at the bottom. Um, I read a third book. I read Ray Kurzweil's, um, singularity is near. I read, you know, a bunch of long articles. I read a handful of papers. I watched a bunch of people on YouTube and I just started to like absorb this crazy topic and wrote a big long post about it. Um, sometimes you happen to, you know, sometimes you write something at the right time and sometimes you don't, right. It's part of the skill is trying to like, figure out when it's a good time for a topic. You know, a good time is when it's, it's, it's buzzy, but people don't quite understand it yet. Is a good time mm. for a topic like that. You don't want to do it when everyone's like read a bunch of stuff and they already have a sense of it. And it's become like, now there's camps, political camps about it. And it's controversial. You want it at the beginning when everyone's like, what is this new thing? You know, um, everyone's uh, wide eyed still about it and trying yeah. to understand. But if you do it too early, then also it's, it doesn't hit either. You know, it's, 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 right. it's there's I, a Goldilocks. I, there's a yes. Goldilocks moment for things to hit. Yes. So I feel like I got lucky uh, here with, you know, um, AI was, it was the right time and the post, you know, really went pretty viral. Um, and then one day, you know, we used Chartbeat to see how many people are on the site. Um, and one day, you know, there's, a, you know, get the notification from Chartbeat, like, you know, high activity or something. And go and there was like a trillion people on this, on the site. And it was like, I don't, it was like, a, you know, it was like a few days or a week after this thing was published. And you see on the side, like tweets, they don't do that anymore, unfortunately, but I showed you like tweets that are sending people to your site. Elon Musk was like, whoa, uh, went to the, see what the tweet was. And he was like, you know, funny, you know, interesting post, you know, good primer on, on AI. And I was like, damn, it was like super exciting, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, a, I was a fan. I already thought he was like a super awesome dude. Um, and so I had part two coming out in a couple of weeks and now I'm writing part two thinking, you know, Elon Musk might read this. Right. And so, you know, it was, uh, it's kind of stressful. And also in my head, I was like, he's not going to like, he already dedicated, you know, 15 minutes of his like ridiculously precious time to my idiot blog. I'm not, don't, don't expect more, you know, my hopes were down, but I published it. Turns out, I don't know how he got back to it, but he ended up reading that and he ended up tweeting about it again. And I was like, wow. Uh, so I was like, okay, this dude like likes this blog. That's pretty awesome. So then, um, then I got an email from his, uh, you know, a, like a, a staff member of his who basically was like, you know, do you want to, you know, Elon likes your stuff. would like to talk to you about like maybe doing some writing about, you know, his stuff. And I was like, yeah. You know, and again, I expect that to be 
him on the phone for a second or maybe not even at all. Like it's he, but it's actually someone else. And he's on the phone for a second. Then he gets off and I talk to like, you know, a person who's working for him about what to do. Turns out he calls me one-on-one and it's just, uh, just us on the phone for like an hour. <laughs> um, talking about SpaceX and solar city, Tesla and like, um, AI and other things. And like super interesting conversation. Um, and basically, did you feel over your depth in that conversation? You know, I think the the way this started was very helpful. If this has been something where it's like a, I I had a good friend that knew him and like asked if he would talk to me for a minute, I would have been like, you know, so. But he this he came to me after like clearly liking my stuff. So I think that gave me some like confidence. Like, and I'm very much myself on the blog. I'm like, I don't have to pretend to be someone else here. Clearly, like. He's coming, he, he specifically like is interested in me writing because he he likes like the way I am thinking about this stuff. So you ticked up North on your own spectrum that we uh, talked about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, th- I think, I mean, look, like I'm saying this now, I think probably if you asked me at the time, I would have been like, yeah, this is horrifying. Like this is, I, don't know. Um, I probably was like, you know, just a mess, like, you know, rambling, but um, he also like, you know, to his credit is pretty easy to talk to. Like, you know, he, he like, uh, you just ask him a question and he kind of just goes on like he would in an interview or anywhere else. He just kind of starts talking about it and um, very, very upfront, you know, you know, there's, there's just really, he's really interested in the things he's working on. So if you ask him about it, he'll just go and it becomes very easy. So um, we had a great combo and, and, and the idea was like, we were trying to figure out, he had no specific idea. It was like, should, should you write some stuff on the Tesla website? Cause there was a blog there um, written by actually uh, Hamish McKenzie, who now is the, one of the founders of Substack. Huh. Um, and it was like, oh, should you do some stuff on that blog? And and I was like, I didn't want to do that because I, I was trying to build my own site and I didn't want to spend a lot of time writing something that was going to bring traffic to the Tesla website. Um, um, and so I, I, you know, I wasn't sure if, you know, he was going to be like, well, that's the only way I'm going to do it. He, again, very laid back. I was like, he, I was like, I think it should be on Wait But Why. Uh, and then I can really like, I can have all the features I want. I can put footnotes. I can make it long. I can have images. And, uh, and he was like, okay. <laughs> and I was like, cool. Uh, and so then we were like, what's, and then, so I kind of came up with the plan he didn't really have like any like instructions for me. It was like, I like what you did on AI. I liked that he felt it was like entertaining and accurate. Those are the two things, you know, and he, that's what he cares. He cares about accurate. And he also like prefers something to be, you know, a tone that people, you know, that, that might rope people in. So I basically was like, well, why don't I do a post on Tesla and on SpaceX and, you know, you know, what else, whatever else. And so they, uh, yeah, that turned into a four part series. First one was just a big picture about him. The second one was long post about Tesla. And the third one was even longer post about SpaceX and the whole story there. And the fourth one was about like, why is this guy so successful? Like what's going on? And to me, it was like the way he reasons. And that was the answer there. Um, and then I've more since written about other things companies of his like Neuralink but um but but what was really interesting is because he just doesn't do things a normal way you know he doesn't you know you think someone like him would have this PR team that's doing his tweets there's no PR team right this is right. him you know he's a guy he's acting like a guy he has it he opens up his Twitter and he tweets something funny he just doesn't do things the normal way for someone like that right in so many ways how does and, he think I mean you, you spent time with him he's obviously in the news and you know his prominence since you first interacted with him is probably a hundred x which he had is a million because he was already yeah I think he had a million Twitter followers when we yeah first so talked even, and now if you just take Twitter it's 
a hundred X that yeah. if you look at any other metric, you know, his influence in the world is yeah, um, completely astounding, you know, with all the different companies with Starlink now with everything that he's doing. How do you think he, um, what is your perception of how he thinks about new opportunities? And like, I'm asking this question in the context of all this stuff that he's talking about with Twitter now and with all the different stuff that he's doing in the world of atoms, you know, that's out there. Like, how do you think, um, like, what is his mental model or his framework for evaluating what to take on and new opportunities? Um, what's your perception of that? Um, I think he always starts from the big goal and works backwards from there. So the big goal for him, he's very clear-headed about it. And he's been saying it in the same wording, the same goal since, if you look back to interviews from his, you know, or, or you know, things he wrote or said in 2001, 2002, um, which is uh, to increase the probability of a good future for humanity. Uh, and an even bigger picture, maybe to he wants the light of human consciousness to go on for a long time and he wants it to be a good future. He wants it. So increase the probability of a good and long future for humanity, not not for each individual person. You know, he's not he's not working on life extension for people as much. You know, he, he's concerned about a species. And again, I think if you really zoom out and you take a big step back and you picture the whole Milky Way galaxy in front of you and you know that there's this little like dot of of higher consciousness there. Maybe there's a lot of places where that exists, but maybe not. We don't know. What we know is that it's one place. And, it, and, and you know, he thinks about the Fermi paradox a lot. Why don't we see other aliens? He's worried that maybe we're very rare and maybe, you know, it's very precarious to keep a civilization like ours going. So he wants to keep that dot, that little flame alive really badly. Um, and so at that point, now you start thinking, okay, so you work backwards from there. So if that's what you want, to raise the probability of a good future. What are the threats to a, a good future? What are the threats to a long future, right? So what are the major biggest, you know, existential things going on? Um, and then from there, what are, okay, so now you've identified some threats. Like he thinks, you know, advanced AI is a threat. He thinks that, um, you know, not moving to a sustainable energy world is a threat to a good future. Um, he thinks being stuck on one planet alone, you know, all our eggs in one basket is a threat to a good future. Um, he's, you know, so there, there, there's some major things like this. Um, and so it's that, almost like inverting, like he kind of inverts, like if the goal is the big future, he's inverted that and said like, what would lead to a bad future Yeah, and now go solve those problems that could potentially lead to that bad future. Yeah. You no, know, which, which of these has potential solutions? Like wh where can human effort um, have an effect, a positive effect on some of these things and raise the probability of a good future. Um, so if he, the erosion of free speech is a threat to a good future, he, you know, I might, see Twitter might very much, I see Twitter very much as part of the same story here. He mm -hmm. sees, um, and this is, you know, this, he sees uh, what's just in general, the polarization of society and, and the threats of authoritarianism from many angles um, as a threat to a good future. Um, and, and, um, and again, it's not just that it's a threat, but he thinks he sees ways that human effort can make it better. He see, he, he sees ways that, I, that if we change things in this way, it could be better with, you know, sustainable energy future. He, you know, uh, if, 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 the, if everyone went electric for vehicles, like that would have be a big help and it's 
seems doable. Like electric vehicles are good enough where people will want to switch over if they could. You know, so it, it has to be practical, has to make sense. But he'll talk about even if he thinks something has a 10% chance of succeeding, but it's really important, it's worth trying. Well, this um, is like his uh, Charlie Munger lunch, right? Like Charlie Munger spent the whole lunch. I don't know if this is actually a true story, but it's definitely been told several times of like Charlie Munger at a lunch with with Elon Musk tells the entire table all the reasons why Tesla will fail. And Elon responded by basically agreeing with all of the reasons and saying, I agree. All of those are real reasons why it is likely to fail, but it is still worth trying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like you miss 100% of the shots you don't take kind of thing. Like, if this really matters, well, the one way to guarantee the failure is to not try it at all. Um, but, you know, he's not crazy. If he thought, if he thinks it's a 0.1% chance of succeeding, he's not going to put his time into that. But 10%, Yeah, well, and 20%. it's also, it's an EV, right? Like, it's an expected value bet. And he's a highly analytical person, as yeah. as you are as well, right? And so you're calculating, even if it's a 10% chance, but if the, the outcome in that scenario is astronomically better than in the event of not trying it or in the event of failure you should probably take that bet and you would do it over and over again. And the overall EV of society will be hugely positive from doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like whatever he could be working on, that's more of a 90% chance of success. He does. He doesn't see that EV as, as, as matching up. So I have to route back to something that you mentioned in passing there on the Fermi paradox, uh, because I absolutely love this one. Uh, you've written a long post on it, which I thought was which I thought was fantastic. Um, for for anyone that doesn't know, this is like the "Where is everybody?" Uh, question of you know, like if life in the universe exists as we you know as people surmise, shouldn't we have encountered it by now? Um, you know, if there's like millions of stars and there's likely to be planets that look like Earth, um, where is the life that would have progressed to the point of interstellar travel? Why haven't we met them yet? Um, so I'm curious just for your perspective on this. Like, what is your current thinking on this paradox? Is there life in the universe? Why haven't we encountered it yet? Yeah, I mean, this is like it's it's the world's most interesting question, right? I think it's, so. It's, there's nothing if you take a, again zoom out. Like, there's nothing more interesting than 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 this. Um, and and the reason it's so tantalizing, I mean, first of all, it seems like it's something I I suspect that we're going to get an answer to in the next like 50 years. Like, I think we're at the end of our. I think this is the, this is one of the last, not last. It's one of the, like the the it's 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 the it's one of the big questions that's probably going to be solved in our lifetimes, in my opinion. I just think that and it can only be solved in one direction because the absence of evidence correct. is not evidence. Yeah, correct. So. <laughs> correct. I think. Wow. I think. Uh, yes. Um, although, although the better your tools get, the more that the argument that maybe we're alone starts to go up if you don't find anything. So, but yes, that's not a clear answer, obviously. Um, and uh, and our tools is just like you know, if you think about it, it's not like oh well, it's been millennia and we haven't answered it. It's like well, we've only been actually searching for like a few decades in in a real way, and our tools are getting exponentially better. So. It's just, um, you know, they're, they're, it's unbelievable what they can do now. Like, just by looking at the wavelengths of light emerging from uh, a star system, they can actually understand what gases are on a planet. Like, they can understand the atmospheric makeup. It's, like, insane to me. Totally insane. It's just, like, imagine how knowing how to do that. And so they can be like, yeah, there's, you know, and they and there's a certain kind of fingerprint that we, we you know, maybe life exists in lots of different kind of atmospheric fingerprints. But we know one. We know one where it really worked here. And so we, if we see another fingerprint that looks a lot like this with a certain amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide and nitrogen and whatever, uh, I think that, you know, that's a that can be a signal. So so anyway, and the, the, obviously the big things you're looking for is like some weird you know thing where a star is you know, one of my favorite 
I'll get to the answer in a second, but just, I just, there's a lot to think about here. One of my favorite scary theories is like, um, there's this boots void it's called, uh, which is like this insanely large space out in the universe with no galaxies or like very few, like a much smaller, it's almost entirely blank. It's just like a sphere of black. Uh, when, when that's not normal, like in any other sphere that size, there's like, huh. you know, thousands of galaxies. And so it could be a lot of things. It could be that that's a big black hole, you know, like, or, or, or there's a group of black holes that like merge. I don't know, there's a lot of different ways it could, things it could be. Referred to as the great nothing. Yes. Colloquially it's, referred I'm, to. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of Scary. obsessed with it. It's, it's, it's upsetting. It's an upsetting concept. Like, I'm just like, I don't want to be in the middle of that. Where, like, what's crazy <laughs> is that light that go that leaves one side of the boots void doesn't hit the other side for like a billion years. So it's like, so you can be, you can be, so, 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 and, and the thing is there are planets. There are some stars and planets like scattered in there. What's crazy is that if there are, you know, planets around there and there's life on there they'll look out and they will be sure that there's no such thing as like a galaxy or there's no such thing as like other galaxies they're just going to see you know they're only going to see anyway so one of the theories one of the potential theories is that actually what you're seeing here because you know one of the one of the ideas about what advanced life more advanced than us might do is you know we think about it in terms of energy so there's this thing called the kardashev scale Level one, a level one species can now harness all the energy of their home planet. So we're not there. It's logarithmic. So we're like a 0.7 out of one, but that's not 70%. We're like 2%. But logarithmically, mm-hmm. it's like 7.7. So we're a little below that. Like, you know, we're, there's obviously all kinds of energy from the inside of the earth and from, you know, rivers and from wind that we're not harnessing right now. Um, then level two is you can harness the energy of your whole star. So that can be a Dyson sphere around the star you know this idea of like a sphere that captures because you think oh you can't sometimes i think intuitively you can't put a sphere on a star it'll go out and i'm like no no no, it's not fire that needs oxygen it's it's fusion it's nothing to do because i'm like you can't like but it's like no, you could cover up the sun and it would be burning just as bright and just as 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 you know doesn't there's nothing it needs from the outside of it so you could put a sphere around it and all the thing goes into the surface of the sphere and it gets channeled into different you know tubes that go out to the you know whatever it's like that that would be so vastly more energy than we have right now that we could ever need. But an, but a super advanced civilization, they might have thousands of space habitats and they might be on hundreds of planets and they might be doing way higher level kind of uh, stuff that, you know, energy requirements. Anyway, level three is when you've harnessed the whole energy of your whole galaxy, which again, sounds insane when there's, a, you know, over a hundred billion, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, half a billion, half a trillion stars. But if somewhere, if someone mastered the Dyson sphere, thing you know once you get it you get it like it's like it's like building um uh, a building was really impossible for like early humans like a big tall building but once we did it we just replicated and other buildings are everywhere right so you can see once they get it now so they just start to go out and they start to uh even if it takes them a few million years because you know and and, and it might, you know to go build these dyson spheres and anyway the one of the theories about the boots void is that there's an ex- extraordinarily advanced civilization that has been you don't see the light because it's all been covered up by their things and they're living this vast thing that you just can't see it and that's that's the evidence of their expansion anyway long answer to get back to you asked is just a big picture for the fermi paradox um and look every almost everyone anyone who understands the scale of the universe and thinks about how probability works almost all comes to the same conclusion. Of course, we're not alone. 
right? It's like if you picked up one grain, no, we have one example, which is what happened on Earth. If you picked up one grain of sand from a beach and you looked in a microscope and you saw it was crawling with little critters, you wouldn't conclude, well, maybe this is the only one that has that. You'd say, of course, I'm sure they're on all kinds of, you know, I didn't just pick up the one that has it, right? So we we we've, we have one example here um, or one solar system and we see that civilization happened. To think that, well, maybe this is the only place it happened makes no sense, right? Of course, with the scale, of course, this must be common. That said, there are some very compelling papers and arguments out there that that say we don't have any good reason to be confident that what happened here wasn't outrageously rare. Like, that's on a scale. So it could be so rare that it pops up in a galaxy once every couple million years. So we're here now, and then maybe there's mm. another one over there, and then maybe you know these two die out, and a million years passes, and another one pops up. So it could be like that. And again, if you if you picture those as like little lights flashing on, if you zoomed out, you still see if you see all the galaxies, you still see all these lights everywhere in all the galaxies. You know, so that but but if that that would be rare enough that there would be nothing else in our whole galaxy right now, right? That would be mean we are an unbelievable freak incident if it happens like once in a galaxy every once in a while. It, you can go further and say that, you know, maybe this is the only time this has ever happened in the Milky Way, but it's, it's happened in other galaxies here and there. You can go even further and say, actually, this is the only time it's happened in the observable universe. Um, mm. Again, it, 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 it goes counterintuitive, but we have no sense of how rare it was, how, how freak of an incident it was. Obviously, it's some kind of freak incident that life began because it took so long before it happened, right? So a lot of collisions of molecules before it happened. Clearly, it's a hard thing to have happen. Uh, we also know I want to propose, yeah, I, I want to propose something that's, I don't know whether anyone has ever thought of, um, this kind of angle to it. So have you ever heard of Cope's rule? No. So Cope's rule is this idea that like organisms basically scale in size linearly over time. Um, uh, kind of up to a point, right? Like then basically like becoming too big, you know, it, it, if if you followed that, humans would be, you know, the size of the sky would be giants, et cetera. And so like, there's this idea that as you get too big, you know, it's bad, right? Like there's like an actual, you kind of asymptote from a size standpoint, you can't actually get much bigger. It's bad for you for various reasons. And you see it play out like, you know, companies get too big and then struggle or like investors, like once you get big, a lot of large numbers, it becomes difficult to perform, et cetera. So I wonder whether there is an intelligence asymptote uh, of societies where at scale, you actually will not see interstellar travel ever become a thing because societies find a way to die off uh, from an intelligence standpoint when they basically like get too smart for their own good. So like in the same way that size becomes a disadvantage when it gets like too, too big, does intelligence actually become a disadvantage? And are we seeing the beginning of that with the fracturing of society in the way that we're seeing today? Yeah, I mean, so you're, you're talking about is 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 human level intelligence a possible great filter candidate? Great filter is a Robin Hanson term that is you know is there some point along the evolutionary path that it, that 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 almost every single attempt hits a wall there? Um, and 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 there's a few options here. It's not just what you said. It's like the great filter might be behind us. It may be maybe going from simple cell to complex cell with a nucleus because that took a took a billion years it took it took a huge amount of time i think it took a billion years of Mm -hmm. simple cells i mean that's but maybe actually the average is it would have taken a thousand uh, you know a a trillion years and it happened really really early here there's a freak incident 
So maybe it's behind us and all the other attempts, they don't get past that and we happen to. That would be great news. It also could be ahead of us. Um, meaning, you know, it, we, look, this is, you know, Nick Bostrom talks about how, uh, what if you could make a nuclear weapon by microwaving sand, right? Set up a nuclear bomb by putting sand in the microwave, just something like something that anyone could do. You have to imagine we would be set back to the stone age at this point, right? Because one out of every hundred thousand people is a maniac who would love to extinct humans and love to go down in the, you know, look at school shooters. I mean, I don't think that they're choosing to only kill 15 people. I think if they could kill a thousand, they pro- a lot of them would, right? They're obviously trying to go down with the biggest bang possible. So it doesn't matter if 99.999% of people are good and reasonable. If, if it becomes easy to blow up the planet, the planet's going to be blown up, right? So uh, this, the, the scary thing is to think about, well, as our technology gets better and better and better, um, and you look at stuff like social media, maybe this happens on a lot of planets. Maybe every planet, they, you know, all these civilizations, they end up with their social media phase. And when they get there, very quickly, you know, madness starts to prevail over reason, which is what's happening on social media. There's, most people are reasonable, but the forces of madness are on the rise and and squashing the forces of reason right now. And maybe this is, an, you know, maybe this is just very predictable and happens all the time. And at some point you get too interconnected and the weapons get too easy to make. And all the reason in the world doesn't matter because suddenly everyone's back in the state of nature, just trying, trying to protect themselves. And, and, and maybe it doesn't extinct them. Maybe it sets them back, you know, to the stone age or whatever. And then they can, you know, so, you know, it doesn't have to extinct us to, so yeah, I mean, it, that's a very, possible thing but here's here okay here's an argument against it if life you know because there's also lots of theories that say even if even if this is pretty rare there's so many stars out there so many sun-like stars with earth-like planets around them habitable planets that a lot of other people say well what we would expect is that there's not just other civilizations like ours there's millions tens of millions of them in the milky way alone Mm milky is just one of hundreds you know of two trillion galaxies um and so even if this were the case, what you're saying, there'd be a freak incidents. There'd be outliers. There'd be some species that developed this all-encompassing religion that was so, you know, that did such a good job of, of policing people's behavior that they that they made it past. They got to the point where they could now all upload their consciousness and you couldn't kill off people anymore easily. And they were on many, many planets and they had developed, you know, intelligence that, that allowed them to snuff out any threats. I don't know. So, or maybe not, but it seems like, you know, man, it really, it's a great filter that filters everyone if it's working. Right. It's a pretty amazing, I mean, it's just amazing to go to the like reaches of thinking on this. The Boots, uh, the Boots Boy, what, the, the Boots, boots boy, boy, the Great Nothing. is going to be like in my nightmares. Um, it's, it's a bad time, the Boots Boy. Yeah, I don't want to go. Because <laughs> there's so much space in between stars, but all of the stars around us, we're all in like a tiny, like a super like urban neighborhood. You know, yeah. a galaxy is like super condensed, but yet when you actually get in here, you're like, oh my God, there's so much space between it, galaxies is even more space. And the boots void is like, it's a next level. It's like, it's upsetting. It is amazing to just think about like humans do have a fascination with the very, very big. Um, and like the zooming out, you know, cosmos like Neil deGrasse Tyson and cosmos and, and how he kind of brought a, um, 
you know, an abstraction of the complexity of the very big to the masses, um, you know, and before him, obviously the original cosmos, um, with Carl Sagan and, um, that there has always been this amazing fascination with the unknown of space and the scale of it. And it like, you know, you watch the first episode of cosmos and I defy you to not like get pushed back into your pillow or wherever you're watching it and feel like, holy shit, what is the meaning of all of this? Why am I here? Um, but the big, has this allure that I find personally, the like very small doesn't necessarily have in zooming in. I mean, it's just the bigness is just so because like the smallness, we know it's there, right? We know at some point you can just get it's like, you know, it's like, yes, if you zoom in enough on anything, you're going to see really small particles, right? But the bigness, like we didn't, I don't think, you know, humans knew about how big things were for a long time, um, which, which of course is another way of saying they didn't know how small they were, right? It makes us really small. Like tiny, yeah. Um, but the, not to the, mention that there are things about the bigness. One of the things I find fascinating historically is like Galileo was ostracized, cast off, um, you know, a complete pariah for um, you know theories that he had about the universe and about the bigness. Uh, a few hundred years later, he was obviously proven completely correct and was no longer you know considered a pariah historically. But there are going to be things that today. Uh, we are hilariously wrong about that. We are like ostracizing people, um, saying you're an idiot, you know, pushing them off like they're on the fringes of science that a hundred years from now, that person will be like the genius that, you know, predicted X, Y, or Z, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, there, uh, I mean, it, there's, I, I forget who said it, but you know, if you go back to any point in history, uh, to any society, there's going to be a bunch of things that you will, that you should not say out loud, a bunch of truths that you better not say out loud. Right. And it's easy to look back at the people in the past and the societies in the past and see what they were and say, Oh my God, you know, you, if you said this very obvious, normal thing today out loud back in 1620 England or in, you know, the Roman empire, um, you're, you're done, you know, you're, you're, you're at best ostracized, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. And it's hard to understand. It's hard to see, you know, again, we have the, we have the helicopter view of those, those societies now, so we can see, um, uh, but we are ridiculous. Like you said, we are for sure without question. I mean, I think 20 years ago, it would have been like, wow, we're probably ridiculous in some ways today. It's almost like it's, it's, it's painfully clear to see like just looking at social media um looking at like like the way like we're being manipulated by inf you know information warfare and um you know the fact that there's like um still like lots and lots of like brutal dictatorships um and like our livestock farming there's so many areas where i'm like you can see like it's annoying to know the things that we're going to be laughed at in the future but like i'm sure people in the 1700s I and mean, you know, if you look at like Abigail Adams' letters to John Adams, people were aware how bad slavery was. You know, there were a lot of Abigail Adams is writing these letters, basically being like, "This is like the worst thing ever." I mean, they they knew, right? So, I think a lot of the time, like there are a lot of people who know how bad things are, but there's there's some forces that are keeping it up, up upheld. Um, so yeah, I think about this kind of thing all the time. It's like. Yeah, the ridiculousness of the human state. The the one thing I will leave you with, and I know we're running up against the end of time, um, is one of your one of your tweets. I think it was last year, which is sort of to this day one of my favorite tweets and and general thoughts. Which is this idea that like if you went back in time 
to a few days before you were um, conceived or born, um, you would be very careful about the actions you took because you would know that there was the potential that any action you took back then might lead to you not being born. Back to the um, back to the future. If you went back, exactly. you know, to before your parents met, you'd be like, "Don't touch anything. Hide in the closet. Don't say anything." Right? Because you know, yeah. And so it, it's a good reminder, if that's the case, that in the present, to think just as carefully about the things you are doing because your actions have very real impacts um, on the future and yeah, on where everything goes from here. Right. You don't have to like worry about like, oh no, like I just interrupted that conversation. Now those two people might not like have gotten married. You, know, you don't have to worry because it doesn't matter because any of the future paths might be equally as bad or good when you're in the present. But it's a reminder that, you know, any, I do think that like we take any person who lives from like a baby to like old age and then they die, whether they're totally, you know, ordinary person living an ordinary life, the ripple effects that, that person causes and the, 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 the secondary kind of consequences. I think you have a totally different world. Uh, if, if, if they, if they lived or if they didn't live in most cases, you know, and, yeah. and certainly today, you know um, so I, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's empowering to be like, yes, what we do yeah. matters. Yeah. Yeah, it's empowering. Um, and the last one is on the Fermi paradox. Uh, you said it has two possibilities. Both of them make me want to hug you. Either the universe is teeming with aliens, which means we're a single family in a cosmic society. Great. Or there's no one else, in which case we're stranded together on a tiny island in the vast darkness, but gladly not the boots void. Yes. <laughs> and that's true. That's part of why the Fermi paradox is so cool. Because like, Either way, it's mind blowing, right? There's it no is. non there's no non mind blowing outcome here, and either way, it, it it is a reminder that like fighting with each other about dumb shit and like human tribalism is so <laughs> stupid. It's it's only when your like head is so like zoomed in uh, that you can't like just remind yourself what the hell is really going on here. That's how I feel. A good a good reason to not fight on Twitter with strangers. Oh yeah. man! Well, thank you so much, Tim. By the way, I, lo- I love your I love your Twitter. You no, know, I uh, I appreciate it. It was uh you know it's been an absolute blast talking with you. I feel like I owe you money um, for how much I learned from this conversation, and I also feel like uh, I'm going to be kind of mad at you when I think about the boots void later tonight. So I appreciate it so much. Look forward to uh, to getting together uh, when you're out in New York. And uh, thanks so much for joining, man. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions that you want featured in a future episode, email us at hi at trwih.com. Leave us a review at Apple or Spotify to help us grow the reach of this podcast. Until next time, we will see you soon.